Good morning. I'm going to introduce myself since not very many of you know me, um, but most of you do know my brother Marshall. Uh, Marshall Pennell is my, uh, my younger brother, and uh, I've, uh, I've, I've known your pastor, Pastor Greg, for probably longer than most of you have. Uh, 25 years or so ago when he was the pastor down in uh, Church in the Gardens, I was a pastor out in Jupiter Farms, and, uh, and he and two or three other uh, pastors in the community, we got together every week to pray together. And I kind of lost touch with him all these years, and then, you know, Marshall pops up in his church here again, and um, kind of reconnected with Greg. What, what a wonderful pastor you have. I, um, I'm, a, I'm a pastor. I'm, I'm ordained and licensed by Christian and Missionary Alliance. And uh, for the past several years, I haven't been pastoring a church. I'm, a, I guess, a missionary to a Martin Correctional um, Institution. I, I do prison ministry uh, three days a week. And, uh, of course, right now everything's, you know, on hold because of the virus and all that. But that's what I do for a living. I raise support in uh, 501c3, and, and uh, that allows me to go into the prison and do ministry there. And I also uh, do a one-on-one -on -one inner healing ministry in my home. And that's what I've been doing for the past several years. I don't get to preach in churches that often, every once in a while, two or three times a year. But what a, what a privilege it is for me to be here today. And I thank you for inviting me. I didn't know that, uh, that Pastor Greg was going to be preaching through the book of, of Matthew, so it'll be interesting to, you know, when he gets to this portion, you know, like, boy, Steve was sure wrong about a lot of stuff, right? <laughs> I, I don't think that will be the case. Um, I, I, I get to preempt him a little bit on this one, I guess. Uh, when I, when I teach in the prison, one of the things that, that I teach a lot, and, and what I do at the prison actually, I, I, have, uh, I, have, I have four different ministries that I do out there. The primary one started with uh, teaching, well, I, I do Kairos in addition to my own. I do Kairos prison ministry as uh, Brother Bob Stratton uh, has, has been a part of that as well. But in addition to Kairos, I, I go out on, on Thursday, mornings, I do a ministry that's uh, my own curriculum, and it was kind of to fill the gaps after Kairos. You know, people, uh, on a Kairos weekend, a lot, of, a lot of men come to the Lord, I mean, or at least show interest and in, in, in want to connect. And, but, you know, most of the ministries that go out to the prison are really all about evangelism. And the, the problem is that you're kind of stranded if nobody's teaching you anything other than, I mean, these are men, that a lot of them that have lived, you know, really hard lives, done a lot of really bad things. Now they want to really know how to walk in grace and knowledge of Jesus. They get saved. But every ministry that goes, goes out there just wants to get more people saved, right? And so I, I, I kind of decided I'm going to go out and start doing kind of a follow-up discipleship ministry. And after uh, 20 or so years in ministry, I thought, you know, I'm, what I want to do is take the, take the believers and teach them how to effectively minister to one another. I mean, volunteers like myself and, and Bob, and you know, we go out there, but then we go home, right? They need, they need to be able to minister to each other because they're the only ones there. 
you know, when, when things are going on in the dorm and whatever, they need to know how to deal with that, how to counsel one another, how to effectively pray for one another. So that's where that started from. And I put together a curriculum that uh, really is, is mostly an inner healing curriculum, but everything that I, that I have really learned about ministering one-on-one -on -one to people. And I was just uh, almost overwhelmed that... Uh, you know, I, I print it up myself and take it in, but every week I have 20, 30 people in the class and they, they take the, the workbooks home and send them out to their families and they use them in their own Bible studies and send them out to other people they know, which is fine with me, but this is actually clearly filling a, a niche that really wasn't being filled. And so it went from there to, uh, well, that still didn't quite fill the niche for the, the brand new believers, right? They just don't even know what they believe. So I started a class called uh, Who is God? And so on, on, uh, what, what we do in the Who is God class is I just tell the, the Bible stories. You know, the Daniel and the lion's den and David and Goliath and just all these great, you know, the Bible's just full of wonderful stories, right? But we tell the Bible stories and then after each story we, we ask the same questions. If this was the only thing you knew about God, what we see in this, school, this story, because we know that the only thing we actually know about God is what he has revealed about himself, right? Nod your heads, I'm right about that one. Right? We, the only thing we can know about God is something that he has revealed about himself. Anything else is our own conjecture. If he didn't reveal it, we're, we're just imagining this is how I think it would be. But the things he has said about himself, that's what we know, right? So the Bible stories are, are, I think, the reason they're there, the reason God included them in Scripture, these historical pictures of God, is because those are the ways that he reveals himself to us. We see God's character, we see God's nature by these stories of how he actually interacted with people in the past. And so every time we tell a Bible story in this class, who is God, we ask, what, if this was the only story you'd ever heard of God, if you didn't know anything else, what would you learn about God from this story? What do we know about his character? What do we know about his nature? Is there anything in this story that is surprising? Is there anything in this story that's disturbing? You know, some of the stories are actually kind of disturbing, right? And then we have dialogue about that. And it, that, that's been interesting, uh, an interesting class, too. I have a I have some Jewish people and, and non-believers uh, that take part in that. And the, the Jewish people, not, not Messianic Jews even, the, the leader of the Jewish community out at Martin takes that class. And he's, he often interjects in the Old Testament stories kind of the Jewish perspective. And that's, that's actually helpful, right? You know, as Christians, we're actually grafted onto their branch. That's what Paul said, right? We're, we're not a separate religion, actually. We're the completion of... of Judaism. We're not different from them. So to get that perspective, you know, me as a white evangelical, you know, basically I have the white evangelical perspective on everything, right? So it's interesting sometimes to get like the historical, this is, you know, it's their stories, right, from the Old Testament. So that's been a good class. Then as a result of a Kairos weekend, I spend a lot of time in the prayer room in, in Kairos. It's my favorite spot. And the prayer room is while the main ministry is going on, there's a little room in back with seven, eight people in it, and they're praying through the whole weekend. That, I mean, that's their job assignment. And uh, I'm 
I'm a, a musician as well. I kind of say that cautiously, not professional by any means, but I take a, my, my guitar and I sing worship music quietly during the whole, while people are praying, right? So there's this atmosphere of just praise and worship and prayer in this little room for uh, eight hours, nine hours a day for four days. And it, it's a pretty big deal, right? And and some of the guys, that it's not just team members, we invite some of the inmates to take part in that too, so the ones that, that um, have proved themselves to be prayerful people. And after one of the weekends, one of the inmates said, you know, we don't have anything on this whole prison that is anything like that. Uh, just a place where we can just kind of go and just sit in God's presence without, you know, prison's a scary place. Like you, you probably understand that, right? It's a brutal environment. And to have just a quiet place that's protected, where they can let down their guard and just be in God's presence with no other expectation, it was just like a, a, an oasis for them. So they, they asked me, is there any way we could like do this once a week? Just, And I asked the chaplain, he said, sure. So now that's uh, Friday afternoons, we spend three hours just uh, you know, I sing and they pray, and that's been really great. And then just before everything got shut down for COVID, I became part of a, a, an organization, a movement, if you will, called the Recovery Church. I don't know if any of you have uh, know anything uh, about that. It's a kind of a growing movement. It's not a specific denomination, but it's an actual church service. It's not an AA program or a 12-step program. But it's a, a church that ministers specifically to people in the recovery movement. Um, you know, alcoholics and addicts have kind of specific needs, specific mindsets, specific issues, right? And, and this movement is it's a, a legitimate church, churches that take part in it, but with services. Well, I, I have become really aware over the years that at Martin Correctional, there, there is a lot a lot of drug addiction. I mean, it is a, a major, major issue. And so I asked the guys, would it be helpful to have a church service that, you know, was for people with addictions? And, and the, the response was just, again, kind of overwhelming. Because there are a lot of people, I mean, when you know you're an addict, right, you, you just don't always feel comfortable just going and sitting in the church with all the perfect people, right? And now we know that's not the actual reality, but when you're an addict, that might be what it really feels like. That everybody else, everybody else is doing fine and, and I'm a mess. You know, I can't go there. I can't, I can't go sit in a regular church. They would never accept me or whatever. But that same dynamic actually happens out there, which I know is a little ironic because we're talking about, you know, murderers and rapists and thieves and, you know, all kinds of people, <laughs> but the addicts still feel like, but I can't go sit in the worship services with them. So to have their own worship service has just been incredible. Um, so that's what I do. And one of the things that I teach there in all of those places, I teach about forgiveness. You can imagine in the prison system, uh, people have been hurt. They were hurt before they got there. You know, um, in, in the, 
the demographic there in the prisons, uh, more than one out of four people have no fathers in their home. Just growing up completely absent a father, that's a lot of, that's a lot of uh, emotional and spiritual baggage all by itself. And then the things they've done, especially, again, I minister mostly to the Christian community there. When you have done horrible things, even when you've come to Christ, that stuff is still there, right? I mean, it still weighs on, I wonder if God really has forgiven me. I wonder if this really applies to people like me. It's an issue, right? And then the people that have harmed them. I mean, again, prison's a, a, a brutal place. Prison rape is a, is a real issue. Prison violence of all sorts, uh, real issues. It's a, it's, a, it's a scary place, sometimes even to minister, but certainly to live. So forgiveness issues are big issues in the prison. So. When, when I'm asked to go speak someplace, this is, what, this is typically what I lead with because it's kind of the foundation of my ministry. I ask for this particular passage because there's so much in this, right? You, you heard the story, and I'm going to kind of retell it a little bit. But this story of the unforgiving servant actually begins with a, a couple verses before that, Peter asking Jesus a question. Now, I'm sure that Jesus um, taught on, on this more than once. I mean, he, even more than what's taught in Scripture. You know, not everything Jesus said got written in Scripture, right? At the end of John, John says, if everything he taught, the, I mean, the, the, all the books in the world wouldn't be able to contain it. I mean, Jesus taught a lot more than what actually made it into print. Right? And I'm sure that, that, that because this is a topic he taught about often, even we see in stories in Scripture, I'm sure this is one of the, the, the ongoing themes with Jesus, too. And so Peter knew that forgiveness is, you know, pretty high on Jesus' list of priorities here, right? And so when he asked Jesus this question, I, I think I kind of get the impression that, that, that Peter was looking for, um, like, Oh, good job, Peter, you get it, right? He's looking for like a pat on the back. He asked Jesus this question. He said, if somebody like continues to sin against me, how many times should I forgive them? Seven times? Now, honestly, if you forgive somebody, like they do something really bad to you and you forgive them once, that's pretty good, right? I mean, to forgive it all is pretty good. Shake your heads, yeah. To forgive it all is a, a, a good thing. So when, when Peter says seven times, you know, I'm, he's, he's trying to be generous here, right? How many times should I forgive? Like seven times? And I think, I really think he was looking for Jesus to say, wow, Peter, you really get it. I'm so proud of you. You just, you really get what I'm teaching. Is that what Jesus said? Yeah, Peter. No, not seven times. Seventy times seven. So what Jesus meant was like 490 times, then you're done, right? No, no. What he meant is, Peter, it's, it's not a number. It's a lifestyle. How many times do we forgive? How many times do people need to be forgiven? That's the number. 
however many times, right? And then Jesus told this story to illustrate that, which is interesting because the story doesn't really talk about numbers at all, does it? But Jesus, he, he illustrated this not seven times, but 70 times seven. He illustrated it by saying, there's this king that was taking an account of all that was owed him, or a king that, I mean, get this picture in your mind, a king that wanted to reconcile the books, right? Any of you have, a, have a, your own jobs or, or have anything to do with accounting processes? Yeah, you gotta keep the books reconciled, right? If you get behind, it's an issue, it's a problem. You gotta, and in order to reconcile the books, you can't overlook things. You can't sweep things under the rug. You can't, you gotta look at, okay, exactly what is owed. Right? I mean, you have to actually dig that all out. This is what people owe. If you don't know what's owed, you can't reconcile the books. So this is what the king was doing. He was going line by line through his ledger. This is what's owed. And he came to this man. Now understand this is a parable, right? So Jesus is, is he, he's telling a story and he's illustrating by using a little bit of hyperbole here, you know, exaggerating a little bit. He says, the king was taking account of all that was owed. He came across this, this man who owed him you know, in our economy today, the number would be like a gazillion, right? I mean, a lot, we, more than we can even imagine. It, 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 technically, it would be something like $7 billion, right? Now, we're talking about a servant. I mean, Jesus used this disparity to, to make a point. This guy that owed the king, no matter what he did, there is no possible way he was ever going to be able to repay that debt. Way, way past that point. That train left a long time ago. That's the point Jesus is making, right? The king came across a man who owed more than he could ever possibly repay no matter what happened. So the custom of the day was that you throw debtors into jail and you torture them until their families cough up the money. Okay, well, here's the problem. If you owe $7 billion, I mean, some of you might be wealthy, but I doubt if any of you are that wealthy or that your families are that wealthy if, or if everybody you know put all of their resources together if they could come up with $7 billion. So this guy, if he was thrown in jail, he was going to be tortured to death in jail. That was it, right? And that's how they reconciled the, the, the debt. It's like, okay, cancel the debt, throw him in jail till he's dead. So the guy comes in before the king, he falls down on his face, he begs the king, please, please, just let me have, I, I promise I'll repay the debt. Of course, he knows he can't, the king knows he can't. So now the king has just this, Basically, two choices. The debt is not going to be repaid. What the king can do is either cancel the debt or have him thrown in prison. And it says the king had mercy and threw him and, 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 and canceled the debt. Now, again, I'm just thinking, the Bible doesn't say this actually in the story, but it's a kind of implied here, right? Some of you have owed money before. Am I right? 
Some of you have owed quite a lot of money, maybe been over your head a little bit. Is that stressful? Is it stressful when the bank starts sending you notes? Wanting to reclaim things, threatening? Yeah, well, if you can imagine that's how the guy came in before the king, right? I mean, a lot of stress. Now, can you imagine the relief? <laughs> that all of this debt, I mean, this burden that had to have been on his shoulders, this debt's just canceled. Now the relief, right? I'm thinking he's on his way home to tell the wife, right? This is, this is really good news. This is good. No more debt. But on the way home, he bumps into someone who owes him some money. And it's not like a tiny bit of money. It's like, you know, in our economy, it'd be like $300, something like that. But, you know, $307 billion. Not at all the same league, right? But because the man owes him money, he actually has legally the same exact choices. He can demand payment, and if the man doesn't have it, he can have him thrown into jail until his family pays. Or he could just, you know, release the debt. And this man falls on his face and says, please, please, just, you know, I promise I'll pay you back. I just don't have it right now. Well, this guy that had just had all this money forgiven, this debt forgiven, he throws this other man in jail over a $300 debt. And of course, people were watching, right? And they went back to the king, and they're like, you know that guy? You know what he did? And the king was outraged. And he called him back in front of him, and he said, you wicked, wicked man. I forgave the $7 billion debt, and you refused to forgive $300 debt. And then it says he reinstated the entire debt and had the man thrown in prison to be tortured. Now, that's not a fun story. But it actually gets a little bit worse with how Jesus ended it. I think maybe the most chilling statement in all of the Gospels Jesus said, and that is what my Father in heaven will do to you if you do not forgive your brothers and sisters when they sin against you. Can you see that this becomes a mandate here? Not just a good idea. I Man, I don't want to get into, you know, theological debate about once saved, always saved, or just, you know, you, you can believe whatever you want about any of this, but what I do want to point out is who's talking. This is Jesus, right? We're Christians here, right? That, that was what I was told, so then, right? <laughs> so to us, who is Jesus? Not rhetorical, go ahead. And... He's our Savior. He's, he's actually God, right? We, we believe in, in the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He is the Son. He is our Savior. You know, the, the Bible says that, that, that uh, he not only is the Son and our Savior, the Bible actually says in, in, in at least three different places, he's the creator of all that is. Everything was made for him and by him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. So this is God. This is God in the flesh 
talking, do you think we should pay attention to what he says? When, when God himself is walking the earth, teaching and talking, is there any chance that he has bad theology? I think probably not. If I'm in disagreement with Jesus, um, it's probably me. Just saying, right? Is there any chance that he just was mistaken and didn't really know what was going on? Nah, nah. Jesus knew what he was teaching here. So no matter where you fall on any other theology, the one thing we have to take seriously is to Jesus, this is serious. Jesus is literally saying, you cannot truly be a follower of me and not follow me in this. And, and when it comes to forgiveness, Jesus did model it, right? You remember on the cross, right? Father, forgive them. Were those just words? No, I think, I think he meant them. I don't think he was just saying them for our benefit. I think he was saying them because he was truly releasing and forgiving the people that were harming him, people who were actually executing him falsely after a mockery of a trial, after torturing him. He was forgiving them, so he modeled it. You and I, we've been hurt, all of us. We've had hurts in life. Nobody goes through life unscathed. Life is hard. Life is brutal. We all get hurt. None of us have had the, the, the sins of the world put on our shoulders. None of us here were ever tortured like Jesus was tortured. None of us here were crucified. And in the middle of that, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. So he modeled it. And here Jesus, leading up to that, is saying, you really can't be a follower of mine if you don't follow me in forgiveness. So we get the mandate, right? Again, I want you to nod your heads. Not, not funny this time. I, 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 we need to get it. We understand this is actually a mandate. If we are Christians, if we are going to be followers of Jesus, we don't have a choice about whether we're going to forgive people that have harmed us. So we understand that that's the mandate, right? The problem is we're, we're not very good at it. I mean, seriously, we're not, we're not, this isn't, it might be a mandate, but it's not something that comes naturally to us. Naturally, we want revenge. Naturally, you know, we want justice. Naturally, we're entitled to anger and resentment. But we're Christians. So as Christians, by definition, we are not natural. Think about that. The Bible tells us that you, me, we have the same power residing in us that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. We have the Holy Spirit in us. We don't get to use the, the excuse, I'm only human. We're not. We are not only human. We are divinely empowered humans. 
the Holy Spirit indwelling us. So what comes naturally to the world is not our standard. We're not very good at it. It's hard. But would Jesus, uh, would he tell us, would he tell us that we have to forgive if it was impossible for us to do it? No, at least not, you know, there are some things, and this I think is one of them, there might be some things that are impossible for us in our humanness, but not impossible for us as followers of God, right? So what does it mean to forgive them? I mean, we have to do it. It's not impossible, but we don't do it very well, and, and it's not easy for us. What, what exactly is he expecting of us? What, does it mean if I forgive that it doesn't matter what happened? No, I don't think that's it. Because, again, in the inner healing kind of ministry I do, I, I, I see some of the darkest um, moments in people's lives. And, you know, some people have gone through horrific circumstances. You know, the statistics in the United States, I, I actually, when I was a pastor, I kind of did a, some anonymous surveys and tested this because it just seemed outrageous to me, but it turned out to be dead on even in the Christian community. In the United States, one out of four women has been sexually abused. One out of six men have. That's just one instance of of hurts that are like, um, you know, that's not something you sweep under the rug and say that doesn't matter, right? That's a big deal. And then you add on physical abuse and emotional abuse and just the, the hard things of life, the traumas, the accidents, the, the things we struggle with, the, you know, the loss, lack. These are big deals. It's not stuff you sweep under the rug. It's not forgiving means, well, I guess that wasn't such a big deal. No, it's a big deal. So Jesus is not telling us it doesn't matter. In fact, if it didn't matter, we wouldn't really need to forgive. Think about that. Nothing to forgive if it didn't matter, right? The reason we have to forgive is because it does matter. Because we were not designed by God to carry this kind of hurt. So it's not that it doesn't matter. So is it more like, uh, well, just forgive and forget? How good are you at that? The forgetting part. Because while I'm talking, you're remembering. True story. You're remembering things that happened in your life. We're not good at the forgiving, you know, the forgetting part. And in fact, this is something that, that uh, I, I used to teach as a preacher, and, and, and I've heard preachers teach it. And one day I was looking it up because I wanted to find the Bible reference for it. And, and it's one of those like, what? It's not even in the Bible. It's something some preacher made up about the sea of God's forgetfulness. Have you ever 
Have you ever heard that phrase about, you know, casting all of our, our uh, sins into the sea of his forgetfulness and that, that, that God doesn't remember your sins? Anybody ever told you that? It's not what the Bible says, actually. It says he doesn't remember our sins against us. Not that he doesn't remember. He's God. Of course he knows our sins. He's not holding them against his people because they're forgiven and dealt with. But my point is that God didn't design us in such a way that we're able to forget. If you have big gaps in your memory, that's actually a, a, you know, a, a medical issue or a, a psychological issue. We're not supposed to have gaps in our memory. Right? We're not supposed to forget, but we are supposed to forgive. If you're like me, though, again, not very good at it, you know, sometimes when somebody has, has wronged me, you know, I, I, I say the words, I think it, I pray about it, but then I'm like walking through Walmart or Publix or someplace and I see that person like, you know, in another aisle. What do you think I do? Like run over to them and give them a hug? <laughs> yeah, maybe you do that. I kind of jump in another aisle and make sure they don't see me so I don't have to interact with them. Right? Yeah, you do that too. I know you do. Right? Because we're not very good at it, even when we want to. Okay, so we understand the mandate. We know we have to. You know, we're supposed to. We have to. Jesus wouldn't tell us we have to if there wasn't a way to do it. And forgiveness is not sweeping it under the rug. It's getting it out and actually dealing with it. Forgiveness is not it didn't matter. It does matter. Forgiveness is not forgetting it. We can't forget it. So what is forgiveness? What is Jesus actually even talking about? And I think we get a clue to that in the story we read about this, this king. It said he was taking an account of all that was owed. Taking an account. Again, as we said earlier, you can't balance the books if you don't take an account of what's owed. So I want you to think about, in the, the how to forgive, think about forgiveness issues, the hurts that have happened, the traumas, the lack in your life, the things that have caused pain in your life. Think about them as debts that are owed. Spiritual, emotional debts. Debts that are owed. We take an account, then, of what is owed. In the forgiveness part, I'm telling you, when I learned this, this was life-changing to me. Uh, we don't have time to go through my whole story of this, but it, it was absolutely life-changing. I, I, I am going to tell you, what I'm telling you here today, if you do it like this, it works. I mean, I just promise you, it works. The hurts in your life, no matter how bad they are, we take an account. Taking account means we look at how has this affected me? Not just at the time, not just like the actual event at the moment. I explain it in the prison like this. If, if at work someone lies about me, okay, that shouldn't have happened, right? People shouldn't lie about each other. So somebody lies about me, that's a debt. That's what I'm talking about, right? They owe it to me as a coworker not to lie about me. That's just decent human stuff, right? 
so they owe me that. So that's a debt. The lie that they said is a debt. That's a forgivable thing then. But it's not just what happened there. What if the boss believes the lie? Now there's distrust between the boss and me. See, it's not just the lie anymore. It's, there's a consequence of that lie. And as a result of that mistrust, he fires me. And because he fires me, um, you know, it doesn't take very long for there to be financial consequences. And because, you know, the finances in our home now are, you know, bills piling up and all, it causes extra stress between my wife and I. And because all this stuff's going on and I'm a, I'm a miserable wreck, um, none of my friends want to hang out. You see, there's the snowball effect of, it started with just this lie somebody told, but it has these consequences. And if, if when I'm forgiving, if all I'm forgiving is the lie, of course when I see that person, I'm still going to try and avoid them. It still hurts, right? So I have to take an account of all that was owed. Because even though that was the start of it, the consequences have gone on. The, the debt is bigger than, than just the original offense. And if I take an account of all of it, then forgiving it ends up being transferring the debt to God. I mean, think of it like that, literal. Transferring the debt to God. I take an account, this is what's owed, and then I transfer. Some of you own, own houses and have mortgages and such. Um, probably most of you. At some point, if you own a house, very, very likely, you got a letter in the mail at some point saying, uh, you know, the, the, the mortgage you have with, uh, you know, Bank of America is now owned by TD Bank. You still owe money. It's, you know, you still have the same payment. It's just you make out your check to a different mortgage lender, right? The debt gets transferred. You used to owe this company, now you owe this company. In a sense, that's what we are doing in forgiving. They used to owe me because the offense was against me, but I'm transferring the debt to God, and they no longer owe me. They still owe a debt. They're going to count to God for whatever happened, right? They still, have to, they still have to deal with God. They still have to, if there are forgiveness issues, if they've wronged, they still need to repent or to do whatever. But that's not my business anymore. I've released that debt to God, and I trust him to deal with it however is best for him. It's not my debt anymore. It literally is that easy. I know that sounds like, well, that I don't, couldn't be that easy, but I'm telling you it is. We can take an account of what is owed, and to take an account, ask the kinds of questions, again, how did this affect me? What are the ongoing consequences? How did it affect me, my relationships with people? How did it affect my relationship with God? How did it affect me spiritually, financially, emotionally? What are the ongoing things? Those are the debts. And the more thoroughly we take an account, the more thoroughly we can release that debt to God. And if we truly just give it to God, literally transfer that debt, 
haven't taken into account, again, it's not, it doesn't seem to work in a blanket kind of way. I'm just saying. It doesn't seem to like, any offense this guy ever did against me, God, I just give it to you. That doesn't seem to work. That's not really taking into account, is it? It's not. Taking into account is, God, when this person did this, it made me feel like this, and it caused this in my life, and it caused this in my life, and I'm struggling with this, and actually looking in depth, this is how this has affected me. This is how it played out. And God, I, I don't want to carry that burden, that hurt, that anger, that resentment. I don't want to carry that anymore. So I'm giving all of that to you, and you carry it. And if we do that, I promise you, he will carry it. If you'll let him, he will do it. He will lift it. He will carry it. He will deal with it. Now, here's the upside of doing that. So why should we do it? Number one, the mandate. You know, we might want to think just a moment, well, why would he mandate such a thing? I mean, it's so hard, right? Well, the thing is, there are these other things that Jesus promised us. He promised joy, right? He promised peace. He promised uh, a, a abundant life. Life lived, you know, to its very fullest. Okay, can you have peace and resentment at the same time? Nah. Can you have anger and joy at the same time? Nah. Is living under the burden of hurt and anger and resentment, is that life lived to its fullest? How can Jesus possibly give us the things he's promised if we refuse to cooperate. See, he can't fulfill his promise if we don't follow him in forgiveness. Does that make sense? Why he would mandate this? Because he has so much more, so much better in store for us. So there's the why and the how is taken account and release the debt to God. And my prayer for you is this week you will actually go home. If you're not sure, you know, I know a lot of people, they struggle with, but I'm not sure I want to open up all those old hurts again. Okay, start with little ones. I'm saying test this. See if it works. I'm telling you because I know it does. You know, start with your husband didn't take out the garbage last night. Okay. Release that to God. See where that goes, right? Start with something you do trust God with. I'm, I'm telling you, when I first learned this, it was a big deal. I went home, and I spent an entire week. I took a week off work, and I went through all of the hurts I could think of in my whole life because it worked. So kind of, a, I guess, an assignment for you and a prayer for you is that you will take this seriously. You'll go home and think of how have I been hurt in life? Who owes and why? Take some time to take an account. Ask God to kind of show you what's owed. You know, another, another little thing of figuring out what's owed is what are you actually angry about? Ask yourself that. When I think of this person, you know, what... What anger, what, why do I get angry or resentful? That's the debt. I encourage people, write it down. 
actually write it on a piece of paper. After you have a list, prayerfully release it to God, then burn the list, just as a symbol of, it's not mine anymore, I'm not going to carry this. I will tell you, the enemy, because we do have an enemy, he will come and he'll press that button again at some point to see if it still works. If there's still resentment there, it doesn't mean you didn't release some things. It just means there might be some things you didn't take an account of. So just do it again. Don't say it didn't work. Say, okay, what else is there that I need to release? I promise you if you do it, it'll work. This is good for all of us, good for your family, good for your church, good for your job, good for you. This is one of the paths to the promises God gave us. Amen.